Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Hurt Take. I am your host, Reese Dobigan. I am all alone again this week. Seems to be becoming a trend. Very disturbing trend, but that's okay. I was all alone for many years of my life as a tragic single man in my 20s for periods of time, so I'm used to it. I'm used to it, you know? Forging on ahead by myself. The being alone thing doesn't hurt as bad anymore. But admittedly, I, I, you know, it's better. It's better when you have people to talk to. It is a lot better to have people around to talk about the mixed martial arts. But we'll see if we can do it again. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm kind of enjoying this loner thing. I, I think I kind of kind of think I am a bit of a lone wolf sometimes. Better on my own, maybe? I don't know. You'll have to tell me. You'll have to leave some comments. Let me know. But you are listening to The Hurt Take, the MMA show made by the fans for the fans. And I'm going at it alone again the weekend after UFC Fight Night in Auckland, New Zealand. Bit of a surprising card, have to say. Not a lot of name value on the card. Not a lot of really exciting stuff to to get you going probably not a lot of people watched it i think most of most of the people who are probably listening to this show right now might not have watched it but that's why i'm here because i subject myself i take my saturday night and instead of going out and having a great time i stay home and i watch you know no namers slug it out in a cage for 10 and 10 Oh, boy. But we'll get to that in a bit. We'll get to that in a bit. The first thing I want to start off with, we didn't get to touch on it last week because of everything that was going on. Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson versus Dana White. This is slowly becoming the fight of the mixed martial arts year for me. (laughs) It's not even in a cage. It's not even in a cage. Pretty remarkable stuff. So about a week ago, as many of you might be familiar, UFC flyweight champion Demetrius Johnson kind of took a stand a little bit against the UFC and Dana White. Kind of went on a really lengthy statement um, about things that have been happening, about the UFC pressuring him to accept a fight against TJ Dillashaw, um, a fight that he's not exactly eager, eager to take for a variety of reasons, primarily that he doesn't trust that TJ can make the weight, having never taken the uh, fought at that that class before, and a variety of other things, uh, pay-per-view points here and there. For my money, it, it was great. It was a great statement. I think he got across everything um, that we as fans kind of have always wondered about the way the fighters are treated, and it, does, it, it did not make the UFC look good, that's for sure. According to Demetrius Johnson's take, um, interpretation of of the events. Dana White, naturally, had to respond and responded, naturally, in Dana White fashion. Uh, More or less, sidestepping certain aspects of it, uh, we're not sure what is fact, not as fiction, but basically saying that it's ridiculous and it's insane he wouldn't take a fight against TJ Dillashaw. Didn't really go through any of the reasons that Demetrius brought up. Uh... Never really mentioned anything about the weight. Never really mentioned anything about TJ jumping the line. Never really mentioned... 
you know, which is which Dana White is want to do. Now, the, one of the big sticking points here is that Johnson wants to fight Ray Borg because Borg is in his class. He's the number one contender. Uh, Johnson isn't going to get pay-per-view points, apparently, um, because he it was never negotiated into his contract. And, and he feels that if he's going to fight TJ Dillashaw in essentially a super fight, he wants to be paid like it's a super fight. Can't blame him there. So White's assertion that, you know, Demetrius... Um, you know, doesn't want to just is flat out uh, refusing to fight the guy saying he's the lowest selling, has the lowest selling pay-per-view in the history of the UFC and so on and so forth. That, you know, those things are largely true, but I don't know. I don't know. Dana White didn't exactly disprove uh, the main sticking point of Johnson's statement, which is that the UFC and Dana White in particular have a tendency to be, to be bullies. Uh, and in, you know, Dana's recent, kind of hit back, he, he basically, well, he said, how do you bully the pound-for-pound pound best fighter in the world? And then he went on to kind of stick his foot in his mouth by saying, that, well, I don't even think that Demetrius is the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world. I think it's Conor McGregor. And and he, his his rationale for that is somewhat hilarious. Uh, essentially saying that Connor will fight anybody anywhere anytime, which I think based on Connor McGregor's actions over the last few years has not necessarily proven to be true. He's never been a guy to jump on short notice fights, this, you know, all these types of things. He's always taken uh the fights that he's accepted have been big marquee matchups that have been marketed. I mean, he's never really jumped into a fight and you know, nominated himself for something. He's usually the guy that people are being slotted in to fight against on a date and a time that's already set. So I don't see how that applies. But I can kind of see where Dana White's coming from in terms of the pound for pound greatness thing. It, you know, I agree that I think Connor is pound for pound a better fighter based on the criteria that Dana White is using. But I don't think that that means Demetrius Johnson isn't the pound for pound best. I just think he's the pound-for-pound best in a different sense. He's the best there is. His skills, uh, his win streak, everything he's accomplished, to me, reads the best best in the biz, maybe the best ever. And now here's the main thing for me about this. Johnson's entire point, and the thing that really kind of bounces out, is essentially the way that the fighters are treated. He's saying that he's being bullied. And it's kind of funny because a lot of MMA fans, a lot of sports people will say, well, bullying, that's silly. That's silly. You can't be bullied if you're a professional athlete. We forget that, that bullying isn't just a juvenile thing that we have to worry about with kids. You know, bullying, what bullying is, isn't necessarily between two children. It's an action in which someone is kind of oppressed by a person in authority, uh, by a person in authority. It's when a person chooses to exert a certain amount of power over you that you can't reasonably counteract. There's all kinds of things that are bullying that have nothing to do with little kids teasing each other in the in the schoolyard. A boss can persistently pressure you to do something you find unethical. That's bullying. Uh, a coworker makes you the end of a persistent joke which you don't appreciate in the office. In the office, that that's bullying. 
You know, the reason we frown at the concept of bullying as adults is because we're adults. There's a perception that we're all mature and have moved past it. But there could still be bullying as adults. And Dana White is doing exactly that in replying to Demetrius Johnson's assertion that he's being bullied and mistreated. What's even worse about this is Dana White is playing both sides of the field as it serves him. Obviously to no surprise, but the recent cyborg, um, uh, Chris Cyborg incident in which he punched another fighter, Magania, at the UFC retreat. You know, a lot, a lot of fighters in the Twitter sphere were commending Cyborg and saying, I would have done that. Hell yeah. That girl was going at you on Twitter. You, you step up to her. You have to do the damn thing. Meanwhile, Dana White comes around, and of course we know that he's not a big fan of Cyborg, has never treated her that great, and says it's assault. Now, again, there's a lot of nuance here. I agree with Dana White. It is assault. You can't go around punching people. But this is where the line is. This is where there's a sport ethic, right? Within the realm of sports, you do things within a certain sport or you live a certain lifestyle within a certain sport because that's what the sport dictates. It doesn't necessarily apply to the outside world. In hockey, if you take a hockey puck in the face, you go get stitched up, you come out, and you play the rest of the game. Nobody would do that any in any other walk of life. But that is the ethic of that sport. That is what you have to do to belong. That's what you have to do because that is the rules and the social cues that are developed in that sport. And in fighting, if you are bullied by someone, the sport ethic says you're supposed to step up and punch them in the face. Period. Whenever, wherever. And so now we're going to turn around and we're going to say, Demetrius Johnson, like, how can we criticize him for making this accusation against Dana White? And how can Dana White then turn around and say, how can I bully the pound-for-pound pound best fighter in the world? He can do it a lot of ways. DJ's just not going to walk up to Dana White at his office and deck him one. White would have called it assault. So you can be bullied. And Dana White has the perfect platform on which to bully anybody. He made 300-some-odd million dollars last year. He runs the UFC by all indications, you know, he's the, the hands-on. He has more power than all the fighters put, put together, essentially. That is a person in a position of authority who can exert an influence and oppress people below them. How do you think people would chalk it up if Dana White called them all a bunch of dickheads every day? If the social media guy, every time he sees Dana White, says, this guy's a dickhead and called him something. That's bullying. That's being bullied. Dana White would say, oh, grow up. Uh. So it's a very interesting situation. Very interesting situation. It's still playing out, so we'll see how it goes. But for my money... Demetrius Johnson's on the money. I don't think I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair of Dana White to then turn around and try and make try and try and uh, undersell the way Demetrius Johnson f is feeling he's being treated. But then again, Dana White has to stand up for the UFC and and the, and that brand. So he's got a bias. Now something else that kind of contributes within the the sphere of the brand of the UFC, which by extension, is the sport of MMA in a lot of ways. Last week on Wednesday, Conor McGregor 
debuted, well, I shouldn't say debuted, he was on the list last year, but Conor Greger appeared on the Forbes Top 25 Highest Paid Athletes list. Top 25 in the world. He came in at number four, tied with Gareth Bale, soccer player at Real Madrid. Here's the, here's the stick, sticking point for me, the, the, the really interesting aspect. Conor McGregor made more money last year than the current golden goose of boxing, Canelo Alvarez. Alvarez is, is being marketed as and talked about as being the biggest star in boxing right now. Conor McGregor made more money than him last year. McGregor made $34 million in 2016. That's about $27 million from his fight purses and another $7 million from endorsements and sponsorship. So, I mean, to me, that's huge. That is a sign that the sport, to a certain extent, has broken through. But it's also a sign of where is this money and why is it not going down to most of the fighters? You know, the top 25 has multiple players from other sports. I didn't check, but I'm pretty sure nobody else in the sport of MMA made that list. So where's all that, the rest of that money going? Is it all going to Conor McGregor? Is he the only one? Now, I understand the economics of it. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve that money. I'm not saying Conor McGregor himself doesn't deserve that money. But the rest of it, the rest of the money, you got to imagine that it's not being divvied up right. By all, by all indications, that's... That's the case. So McGregor, he did it on the back of these two massive pay-per-view events, right? He fought Nick Diaz twice, historic pay-per-views, and he fought Eddie Alvarez and won the lightweight title. Three humongous, big-time fights. I think this is a sign of things to come. I think, well, the biggest thing that I took from this is, my God, there you go, Conor McGregor. Now you're going to be able to turn around and say to Floyd Mayweather when you're negotiating with him, like, yeah, see this? You need me as much as I need you. And he shouldn't take a cent less than he thinks he deserves. And I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case. He's, he's earned it. He's earned it. All right, at the top of the show, I said I was going to talk about UFC Fight Night. Last week, I didn't think that I would be doing this, really. I thought maybe I would be talking about a couple couple things, but altogether, a pretty entertaining card, I have to say. Derek Lewis and Mark Hunt, despite the fact that it, it slowed down considerably and became almost a lethargic fight, it was still very interesting because it kind of built up the drama and the tension. You know, Derek Lewis trying to make this push, Mark Hunt trying to stay relevant, and by the end, they're just trying to stay on their feet. Who can who can make that last big punch? Now, technically, it was kind of interesting. You know, there's something about the heavyweight division. There's, there's not... It's probably the least skilled in terms of the depth of skill of all the fighters put together. The standard ain't that high, Right? The athleticism is usually not as high as the as the middle divisions and you but you can in that sense you can really see fighting strategies change. 
Because guys, they don't have a lot of depth of skill, so they adjust. When they adjust, it's big and it's obvious stuff. So that was what was kind of fun about this fight is you saw the fight slowly evolve in very big, obvious ways. Derek Lewis started off the fight kind of outfighting, staying back, countering when he came near the cage, and then throwing these big, big head kicks, some jumping knees. And then as the fight went on and his energy sapped, his hands dropped, he started really loading up on that one shot and just trying to get Hunt out. And Hunt, meanwhile, adjusted. And I saw some chatter online about how Hunt wasn't pursuing the finish on Lewis. He was throwing a lot of body shots. You know, after round three, some people ignorantly were suggesting uh, that the fight was fixed for whatever crazy reason they would think that. Because Hunt was working the body. But, I mean, that's... The simple strategy. Lewis was already tired. If Hunt goes in there and just patiently keeps working the body and working the body, you saw what happened. By the end of the fight, that's essentially what ended it. Lewis was too exhausted to retreat. He was too exhausted to really put up a fight at all. He didn't... It wasn't like your standard, he got clipped and, you know, kind of went gummy and down, or, you know, he was covering up. He was still standing. He was leaning over beside the cage and... He was just too tired to put up a fight. So it was an entertaining contest. Now, Derek Lewis, after the fight, said this is probably his last fight. Pretty surprising. After the streak he was going through, he's not not a young guy. I think he's 32. But as a fighter, he's fairly young. So it's surprising to see someone decide to kind of hang it up. Now, whenever I see a guy retire for any reason other than you know, kind of an immediate career-ending injury. I tip my hat to them. It takes a lot of courage to do that. When you still have a bit left in the tank, so to speak, you know, the Calvin Johnsons of the world, the Barry Sanders of the world. When guys retire a little bit, you Patrick Willis's of the world, you know, when guys retire a little bit before we feel as fans, maybe they, they were meant to go. To me, that's brave. Very brave. You know, I'm disappointed I won't get to see him fight again, but... Good for him. As for Mark Hunt, this win keeps him kind of an interesting, uh, in an interesting place at the top. He says he wants Alistair Overeem, who he thinks is a big cheater. Can't argue with him there. I've never been a big Overeem fan. Kind of got a smug look in his face all the time. Hopefully he gets that fight. That, that will be a very interesting fight. The narrative is very interesting with Hunt suing the UFC for essentially negligence and no, and saying he, that these fighters he's all fight, he had fought against were all on steroids and that was a danger to his health. Overeem is a past steroid abuser. That'll be very, very interesting. I hope he gets that fight. Elsewhere on the card, Derek Brunson crunched Dan Kelly with a pretty explosive right hand. Uh, not much to say about that. I, I, I was more excited for Dan Kelly, so when Derek Brunson got the finish, uh not as exciting to me, but hey, he did what he had to do. Uh, that's that's what you should do when you're a Derek Brunson. When you're fighting Dan Kelly, an overaged, ath- athletically limited guy, that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, so while it doesn't move Brunson up too far, it does give him a nice highlight for the cannon, which is a very important piece for marketing these days. You're going to see that knockout over and over and over whenever they're hyping a Derek Brunson fight. So it's very, very important. 
You know, it's a big reason that Conor McGregor was able to ascend as quickly as he did, in addition to all the other things. Whenever they could showed clips of Conor McGregor, he was putting guys out. So that's important. It's a big, important piece. Now i got to give a shout-out. Finish of the week, Dan Hooker. Ooh! 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 Perhaps not the most aesthetically beautiful knee I've ever seen, but just so well-timed and savage, knocking out Ross Pearson with that, that counter-step-in knee, sending Ross Pearson's mouth guard shooting out of his mouth. His knee kind of buckled, and he went back. Ooh. And you know what's funny is, is it's always really satisfying to see a guy finish a fight with a technique that you you see the pieces building you see the where you see where the where he gets that kind of stimuli why he did it how it worked you see it happening in front of you you know Pearson throughout the fight would would throw some counters and then duck drop levels a bit bend his knees to bob and weave and in the moment before the knockout uh, in the combination he threw right before that, he dropped levels, bobbed, weaved back and forth. And then when he threw, I think, a left hook, Hooker just threw up that knee right away. Boom! Caught him right on the chin. Ooh! That's a highlight knockout. That was that was beautiful. Last week I said, look out for Alexander Volkanovsky on the card, too. All I can say about that is uh, to be continued. Decently impressive performance, but nothing to write home about. All right, now, so we got to look ahead. There's a card this weekend, right? Yeah, so. I don't know. There's not, there's not a lot going on on this card that's really got me excited. Safadine versus Dos Anjos. Uh, interesting to see his candidate, Dos Anjos, get on track as a welterweight uh, against Tarek Safadine. Always a very dangerous opponent, but more or less... Um, just a game test guy that's usually thrown in against people the UFC has higher hopes for. Justin Scoggins is on there. A uh, very exciting uh, flyweight with a cool style. He kind of does that uh, bladed sideways karate stance like Stephen Thompson. Very fun to watch. Uh, but can't stop the takedown as well as Stephen Thompson and leaves his head out there for guillotines like a dope. So... Hard, hard to predict how he'll do, but he'll be fun to watch. Colby Covington is on there, too. Uh, this is a guy with one loss on his record, I believe. It's a big jump up in name recognition. Uh, I think he's filling in on short notice to, to take on stun gun Dong Hyung Kim, who still throws the most reckless and ill-advised spinning backfist in the sport. But damn it, if he doesn't just throw it every time, who cares? Always fun to watch. That should be an interesting fight. But the big thing at the top, Holly Holm versus Betch Kohea. Oh, man. Uh, I've had the argument with Mitch before on this show about how I feel about the women's bantamweight division, and not much has changed. I think that this is just a sign of how shallow that division is, how shallow and irrelevant a lot of those fighters are right now. It's, it's very weak. I mean, look at the UFC's rankings. Okay, look at the rankings. Go through it one by one. This card is being headlined by two former title challengers who are almost irrelevant, and it's not even two years after their title shots. 
I, I'm, I mean, I, that, if that doesn't say something, they are headlining this card and they're essentially irrelevant. And now you look at the UFC's rankings. Number one, you got Nunez. Great. Lover. Talent. Great. Number one contender, Shevchenko. Her UFC debut was after Ronda Rousey lost the belt, not even two years ago. She's the number one contender. She's barely been in the promotion for two years. Then you have Juliana Pena. Great. Good. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't she lose recently? Her most recent fight? Am I wrong? And she's the second overall? Okay, yeah. Not looking good. Number three, Ronda Rousey. Where is she? I don't know. Hasn't been champion for four, 576 days. And she is number three. You got Raquel Pennington. A sub-500 fighter only four fights ago. And is now in the top five in the division. Was a sub-500 fighter. Six through nine, Sarah McMahon, Liz Carmouche, Kat Zingano, and Alexis Davis all are still in the top ten. All have lost to Ronda Rousey. All have seen their title shots come in. They round out the top ten. That's the top ten. And then you got Jermaine Durand to me at ten. The featherweight champion who apparently doesn't want to stay at featherweight anymore. And then you have Betch Cohea. I mean, there's a lot of names on there where they recognize, but that's because they market the shit out of them. But, like, none of them are relevant. It's such a weak division. It's, it's so thin and shallow. I, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't, that division does not get me going, I tell you what. And Shevchenko is probably not long for that division either. If she loses to Nunez here, they're starting a 125 division for women. That's her ideal size. She could drop down there and be the champ for the next 10 years, and then you've got one few. Oh, it's a mess. It's a mess, people. It's a mess. I don't know. I I'm sorry to end on such a downer note, but that's just it. That's all I got to talk about this week. I could talk about how uh, Michael Bisbing uh, made a big disclaimer saying that he, this is not fact. According to Michael Wisbing on his podcast, he said that uh, Chuck Liddell was making $1 million as a UFC ambassador. $1 million. I mean, wow. Wow. Uh, it's great that uh, the UFC under uh, the Fertitas and Dana White were taking care of the old boys, the guys who built the game, but when you have the number of fighters who are, who are currently out there taking punishment, saying they're not making good money, and Chuck was making a million dollars to apparently really not do anything. You know, this isn't this isn't a Forrest Griffin guy who apparently shows up at the office and gets it done. This was Chuck, who was apparently notorious for this. Oh, God. million dollars. I hope that's wrong. I really hope that's wrong. If he, and if he was being paid a million dollars, why would he want to come back to fight Tito Ortiz? Competitive spirit? Aw, oh, fuck that. Give me a break. I want to thank you all for listening to The Hurt Take. I have been your host, Reese Dobigan. I've enjoyed going at it alone again. It's more intimate. 
It's just you and me and your earbuds. And I thank you for joining me. <laughs> so until next week, I am out.